There is an unseen hand to me that leads Welcome to the Unseen Hand Podcast, featuring the pulpit ministry of missionary evangelist Ronnie Brown. Listen in as Brother Ronnie shares the truth of the Bible and how God's unseen hand can lead and guide your life with each and every verse. This hand still leads me as I go. All right, if you have your Bibles, take them to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John chapter number 19. Gospel of John chapter number 19. Although all of the Gospel accounts give a... Uh, give a record of the burial of the Lord Jesus, which we'll find ourselves in in the days of His Passion. Um, I, I liked John's uh, account a little bit different, a little bit better than some of the others. It was more concise and compact. And so we're going to look at the burial of the Lord Jesus tonight. John chapter number 19, and look at verse number 38. John 19 and verse number 38. After this... That phrase there is referring to the death of the Lord Jesus and how He had expired on the cross and all that took place then with all of the signs, the rent veil, the, the earthquake, the graves opening and all the things that took place. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus and Pilate gave him leave. And he came, therefore, and took the body of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes and an hundred pound weight. And he took they the body, and then took they the body of Jesus, wound it in linen cloths with the spices, as the manner of the Jews is to bury. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulchre, wherein was never a man laid, never man lay, yet laid. There laid they Jesus. Therefore, because of the Jews' preparation day and the, and the, for the sepulchre was nigh at hand. You can be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. And I want to look, to you, look with you tonight at a day of separation. A day of separation. Jesus, His body was separated into the garden tomb. And I want us to look at not day of separation but days of His separation. And I'll, I'll, I'll shed light on that in a moment. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dearly Father, we love You. I thank You for the Lord Jesus. And God, I thank You for this study of His last week on this earth and all that it says to us. Father, I pray You'd help us to glean spiritual truth out of those silent days in the tomb where your body laid motionless and cold on a bed of stone. Father, I pray you would give us insight into all that took place in your burial. Teach us spiritual lessons. God, I pray uh, that our hearts would be open to what, what you have to say in your word concerning the events that take place in these days. Father, we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. Heard about this poor fellow. I don't know if I've ever told you this story before, but it's one of my favorite, so I'm going to tell you again. I heard about this poor fellow that was walking home in the darkness of night. He decided to cut a shortcut through the cemetery, and he fell into an open grave that was dug 
for someone to be buried the next day. He tried and tried and tried to get out of that grave. All, with all of his strength and might, trying to climb out of that grave. Finally, he gave up and said, I'm just going to have to sit here until morning and holler for somebody then. Well, as he sat there in the corner, the shadowy corner of the grave, another un- unfortunate bystander or a passerby fell into the exact same hole. And the, the fellow that was in there first sat in the corner just watching this guy trying to get out of the grave, trying to climb, trying to climb. He couldn't get out of the grave. Finally, after he'd watched him try to get out of the grave for quite some time, he said from that shadowy corner, Bud, you might as well give up. You can't get out. Well, he did. Oh, <laughs> uh, You see, uh, until, up until this point in the, in the Bible, in the eternal workings of the hereafter, the, the grave had been uh, running the show, so to speak. The grave had held everybody from Adam down through the patriarchs, uh, through the prophets, through the line of David, even unto the very day of Jesus. All around the globe, no one escaped the grave. Yes, there were a few that had been raised from the dead in Elijah's day and Elisha's day. And some had even been revived during the ministry of the Lord Jesus. But they would all soon meet the same fate. They'd all be held in the clutches of the grave. By the time we come to our text, the grave had had a perfect record except for Enoch who was walking and was not, for God took him, and Elijah. That's a pretty good record for a lot of centuries that death had held everyone, the grave had held every one of them. But the significance of this burial is found in the fact that with this burial, the grave lost its hold over many a soul. You see, all the days before Jesus had been active and preaching and teaching and praying and preparing for what took place on Friday. And He had endured the agony of the cross and satisfied the will of God in that moment. Breathing out His last, He dismissed His spirit and willingly walked, yielded, uh, willingly walked into death. Yielding to death in that moment. In the days that are of our focus now, Jesus lay absolutely motionless, absolutely still. All of the hissing and shouting and the, and the, the screams of the crowd had all gone away. Now it was just quietness of Jesus lying in the garden tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. I consider these to be days of separation. Now, I I say days because of a personal conviction of mine that Jesus died on a Thursday. This is nothing to break fellowship about. We're not going to split this church over the whole thing. I don't think it's mentioned in our doctrinal statement of the church. I have a personal conviction that I believe Jesus died on a Thursday. The Thursday crucifixion would have given room for not only three days, which could be any portion of a day. Jesus was buried before sunset, so He was buried in that daytime. That day counts as a day that He died. 
And I think a death on Thursday would give room for three days and three nights. A death on Friday, I just can't get three nights out of Friday. I think about, um, what's his face? The pastor from Natchez, Mississippi, Mississippi, James Crumpton, in one of his messages that he preaches on how Jesus didn't die on Friday, he said even a Georgia lawyer can't get three nights out of dying on Friday. Well, the truth of the matter is I think he died on Thursday, which would give three days, a part of a day Thursday, uh, the full day Friday, the full day Saturday, the Thursday night, the Friday night, and the Saturday night. Three days and three nights. I take Jesus' words in Matthew literally. As Jonah was in the belly of the whale, three days and three nights, so must the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. Three days and three nights. And so that would put Jesus there in the tomb. And when the sunlight cracked over, over the horizon, would be the moment that that was completed. And Jesus would have stirred and risen from the dead. And I, so whatever you believe, that's fine. I think we can all agree, praise God, He's not in the grave anymore. He's alive. He's raised from the dead. He's not there anymore. Oh, let's don't steal from Sunday. Let's get back over here into the grave now. Get back in the grave. It's hard. Hard to pull the reins on. I was reading a book by Herbert Lockyer where he outlines some of these days of the, of the passion of Christ. And it seems like half the chapter on this day in the tomb, he gives to the resurrection. <laughs> and so we're going to try to rein ourselves in and stay in the tomb with Jesus. I call these days of separation because in the grave, Jesus was separated from the world of the living unto the world of the dead. While at the same time, He was separating us from our sin. He was putting away our sin into that grave. Now, although the body of Jesus lies cold and pale, shrouded in the windings of death, laying on a cold bed of stone, there was something going on. There were things that were happening at that time. Now, in order to do a proper study of the burial of the Lord Jesus in the time that we have, and to draw out its significance, I believe that every one of us, each and every one of us, must look at this burial of the Lord Jesus and see it from three different vantage points. I want you to look at this burial from the vantage point of the physical record of His death, this tomb stands as a marker, as a reminder of a physical death. Not only that, but a spiritual reality. There were things going on in the spiritual world that the Bible tells us about in these three days and three nights. Then there's also a theological result. What does Jesus being buried in the tomb have to do with me theologically? My salvation, my stand between us and God. Three different aspects. We'll look at the first one is this. Notice first, we see the physical record of His separation. The physical record of His separation. Crucifixion is an agonizing, slow death. Sometimes uh, taking days for death to arrive. 
Look in verse number 31 of that same chapter in John 19. The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was an high day. You know, oftentimes when I say that I believe the Lord was crucified on a Thursday, people would say, well, wait a minute. It said the next day was a, was a Sabbath day. That's Saturday, right? Well, a high Sabbath is a different Sabbath, a, an additional Sabbath. It is a day that is a Sabbath as well. Here in this instance, there were two consecutive Sabbath days, Friday and Saturday. But I digress from that. Here we find that these uh, these people that had trampled every tradition, every law to try to get Jesus strung up on the cross of Calvary wanted to make sure that no bodies were on the cross in agony lest they violated the Sabbath. God forbid these people in agony and pain work by moving their bodies trying to get air on the Sabbath day. And so they had gone to Pilate to request that all these people were to be killed. Of course, you'll read the text in the gospel accounts how the Roman soldiers went to the two thieves breaking their legs, enabling them or or confining them to not be able to raise up to get air. And they basically strangled to death. When they came to the body of Jesus, they had seen that it already breathed his last. Pilate was even marveled at the fact that Jesus was already dead. And so they did not break his legs. But all men had to be dead by the end of that Sabbath day. And so they requested the death be hurried along by the breaking of the malefactors there. By the time they got there, Jesus was already dead. That brings us to the physical record of Jesus' burial. It starts... Right here. Now, first of all, I want you to see the body was begged. The body was begged. In verse number 38, we're introduced to a character by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. He was the one that the scripture says besought Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph of Arimathea, the scripture tells us that he was a member of the council. That puts him on the Sanhedrin. That puts him on the very body that had condemned the Lord Jesus to death. But Luke's gospel account tells us that that, uh, Joseph of Arimathea was not consenting to the death of the Lord. Do you remember the scene in the judgment, the trial of Jesus? How that after Jesus said, you'll see me coming in the clouds of the Son of Man, coming in the clouds of glory. The high priest says, what more evidence do we need? And he rips his garment. Can you imagine the whole place erupting with with shouts and jeers and, and, and kill him, kill him. All while they were two, we'll read about the other one in a minute, two disciples of Jesus that may well have hung their head in shame, that may well have wept at what was taking place, whose voices of dissent were drowned out by voices of devilish murder. He was one that did not consent to his death, but he was also a secret disciple of Jesus. You know, it's interesting to note how uh, that, that both in his birth and in Jesus' death, he's associated with a godly man by the name of Joseph. Herbert Lockyer in his book that I've been reading on this same subject says the one gave him a home and the other 
gave him a grave. Jesus being associated with this man named Joseph of Arimathea. In a bold move. You know, Pilate's in a killing mood right now. The disciples are hiding their hides for dear life, thinking that they may be the next ones crucified on the cross. But in a bold move, in a bold move, this man Joseph of Arimathea uh, disregards the, uh, the, the jeers and the looks of his fellow members of the Sanhedrin and goes before Pilate begging the body of Jesus. The language suggests that he pleaded, he begged for the body. Usually victims of crucifixion were left on the cross to die long after their, their death. They were to hang there and putrefy on that cross as long as they could possibly be held up there, eventually falling to the ground and to be fodder for the wild dogs of the region. I imagine the thought of such a fate coursed through the mind of Joseph and caused his heart to shudder. This man that he had believed his teaching, this man that he knew to be the Messiah, He'd given his life to, surely could not his body end in such an un, ungodly fate. He boldly goes to Pilate and petitions and begs for the body of Jesus. What boldness that he has. You know, there's nothing like seeing the cross afresh to give you new boldness. Why do we focus so much on Jesus? Why would we spend so much time speaking of the cross and Jesus' death on the cross? Why? To see it afresh. To see it again. To stand before that cross and willingly yield our lives for the one that gave his life for us. Yeah, I remember when I proposed to Carrie. We were at the Carl Sandburg home there in North Carolina and we had taken a nice tour into that home and we were making our way uh, down to the parking lot. There's a beautiful, a beautiful wood bridge across a placid lake there, a stream. And, and as we walked across that, the sun was setting over the Carolina hills in Flat Rock, North Carolina. And it was there that I bowed my knee and I asked Carrie to marry me. And she blushingly said yes with smiles and kisses. We hugged as I rose from my feet. About that time there were pastors by that came by. And I looked at them and I, hey, I'm getting married. I'm, I just asked her to marry. I'm getting married. There is something about love that gives us boldness. There's something about love. Love casts out fear. When we love Jesus properly, we will have boldness that it generates. Here we see the body that was begged. We also should also see the body that was bound. Look at verse number 39. And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. Then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen cloths which the spices, uh, with the spices as the manner of the Jews is to bury. The scripture tells us that a man named Joe, uh, scripture tells us about another secret disciple, a man by the name of Nicodemus. We know him well from John 3, who came to Jesus by night with, with great, uh, uh, with great, uh, uh, words of affirmation of Jesus, but yet questioning his teaching. This man, uh, this, um, 
man John names as the one that came to him. He, he, brought, he bought spices and he bought aloes to anoint the body of Jesus to stave off as long as possible the corruption of death. Of course, they didn't have our modern embalming practices that we use today that are so useful in preserving the body and keeping it from much of the putrefaction that happens. And so in order to uh, calm down the stink, if you will, of the decaying body, oftentimes they would put immense amounts of oils and spices so that as the body would be a, a begin to decay and to produce that dead smell, it would ignite the aroma of the spices and cover over the stench. Joseph of Arimathea brought these aromatic gifts to the burial of the Lord Jesus. But I'm afraid his offering was a little too late. Just days earlier, do you remember the story of how Mary anointed the Lord Jesus with her costly spices and the aroma filled the house? And people passing by with, oh, what is that beautiful aroma? Who is that coming our way? It is the Lord Jesus anointed for His death. Joseph of Arimathea's gift was just a little too late. I want to say something particularly to our young people tonight as we have many of them in this room, don't hold the precious gift of your youth to the last of your life and then decide to give it to Jesus. Don't wait until all of your years of influence and the, the great years of strength and learning are all gone away. Come like Mary and break your costly life on the life of Jesus and give it all to Him. But we do have to say to His credit, Better to come then than not at all. Late in this game of, of his life, late in the hours of his life, he finally steps forward and identifies himself with the Lord Jesus. Here we, they took the body and they round it in linen cloths. Linen cloths. Notice that it had said that they were new cloths. I believe it says in our, in our text... Uh, they took the body and wound it in linen cloths with the spices. Other gospel accounts indicate the, the newness of these windings. How that they weren't just what was available and what was found first, but Jesus was given the best, the most costly. His body was wound tightly as was the procedure for the Jewish burial. Uh, his body might resemble what you might remember in, from pop culture as a mummy. Wrapped up in winding after winding after winding. Laying on that stone slab. It's interesting to note that when Jesus was born and lovingly placed in the manger. What did the angels say to the shepherds? You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. Now at the end of his days. He is swaddled once again and placed on a, a bed of death. But these windings were, were not just an incident. These windings are witnesses. They witness to the resurrection of Jesus. I don't know if you remember from last year, I was looking over my message from last year concerning uh, the resurrection of Jesus. I talked about the windings, how that they were laid there in the grave purposefully. Had the windings gone, been gone, it would be automatically assumed that someone had scurried away with the body. With a Roman garrison outside, passed out, so to speak, or knocked over the head, about to rouse at any moment. You're not going to take the time to unwind Jesus, leave the wrappings there, then take the body. 
No, these windings speak to, to the validity of his resurrection. Jesus unwound these and left them in the tomb there as a witness of his resurrection. For all to see like an empty shell on Easter Sunday, testifying that he, there was no grave robbery, but a great resurrection. <laughs> we see not only that his body was begged, his body was bound, but his body was buried. 41 through 42. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new sepulcher, where never a man was laid. There laid they Jesus, therefore because of the Jews' preparation day, and for the sepulcher was nigh at hand. Our text tells us that close by the place of the gruesome cross, there was a garden tomb. A tomb that would, be, would have been carved out of rock, having only one entrance into it. Parallel passage in the gospel account tells us that it was owned by Joseph of Arimathea. This was his own grave, no doubt, for his own death one day. Joseph gave this, uh, this unused tomb uh, for the burial of Jesus. And, and the, Christ, the, the Christ that was conceived in a virgin womb was buried in a virgin tomb. It's unreal how, how the life of Jesus just closes like a book. And what we find here in his earthly ministry. The tomb would have been sealed with an enormous stone. And then it would have been stamped with a seal of the Roman government. You remember how that even though the disciples had forgotten that Jesus was going to be raised from the dead, his enemies, the Jews, did not forget what Jesus said. They would come back three days after the grave. So they had implored Pilate to take and seal the tomb with a Roman seal. Post the garrison outside the tomb. Make sure nobody tampers with the body. If anyone were to tamper with that with that seal uh, upon that grave, they would incur the full wrath of the Roman government. To remove that seal was a crime against the state, which is punishable by death. And there Jesus lay, physically, bodily, silent, pale, cold, within that grave. That is the physical account. That's what to the naked eye took place in that burial. But I want you to see that there is more going on than just Jesus being placed in the tomb. That leads us from not only the physical record of His separation, but I want you to see the spiritual reality of His separation. Although Jesus lay motionless in the garden tomb, that does not mean there was nothing going on. Although there were, are varying uh, differences uh, uh, between denominations and Christendom. Different denominations have different wording to this. But most of the Apostles' Creed, that, that first earliest statement of belief by the early church, includes the following. Like for example, in the Book of Common Prayer. The, here is, the, here is the, the creed of the Apostles. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day rose again from the dead. Now, do you notice something unusual? 
It's not something we talk about very often. Sure, Brother Ronnie preaches every other Sunday about the gospel, the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. But he doesn't include statements that indicate that Jesus went to hell. What are you talking about, preacher? What does this creed mean? Well, I want us to take a look at that. The creed reflects a truth from Scripture that reveals that as Jesus lay motionless in the tomb bodily, spiritually there was activity afoot. There were things going on with the spiritual reality of Jesus. What He was in spirit. Just like, for example, uh, many years ago my grandmother passed away. We buried her in the cemetery there in Trenton. My grandmother Green, I preached her funeral. Her body resides there to this day, although it's been years ago, coming up maybe on a decade ago. Her body, what remains of her flesh and cast, is in that grave. But what would we all naturally say? The soul and the spirit of my grandmother are up there with the Lord in heaven. She trusted the Lord Jesus as her Savior. She's with the Lord here. The same would be true and said of our Lord Jesus. As His body lay dead in that grave, there was a spirit. There was a soul of Jesus. Who instead of being in the presence with His Father, descended into hell. I want to show you that in this text. I want to show you what was being said there. Number one, I want you to see, first of all, His arrival in hell. On the cross, Jesus told the repentant thief. See if you can remember this. Luke 23, 43. If you're taking notes, write that down. Luke 23, 43. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Thou shalt be with me in paradise. Today. This day. Do you believe the words of Jesus and what He said? Do you believe He actually said that to this thief? You're not a, uh, an infidel or an atheist that doesn't believe the Bible? Then Jesus said... That day, they would be together in paradise. Well, we know Joseph of Arimathea put Jesus in a tomb and He would remain there three days physically until Easter Sunday morning. Jesus was speaking of His soul and His spirit. What about upon His resurrection? After Jesus was resurrected in their grave, there was an encounter with Mary Magdalene in the garden. Listen to what Jesus said. John twenty seventeen. Jesus said unto her, Touch me not. For I am not yet ascended to my Father, to my Father, uh, to my Father. Now, where had He been? If He wasn't with the Lord, if He hadn't gone to His Father yet in those three days and three nights, where was He? Prior to the ascension of the Lord Jesus into heaven, after the resurrection, uh, after the resurrection, prior to the ascension of Jesus, after the resurrection, upon the death of every man, both the faithful and the faithless, they all went to a place called Hades. The Old Testament would call it Sheol, the grave, death. Some Old Testament passages do call it hell. It is a place, a realm of the dead, okay? 
This place of departed souls consisted of two compartments. Now you're going to say, Brother Ronnie, where are you getting all this? I'm getting there. Stay with me. Sheol, the grave, hell, prior to Jesus' ascension and resurrection, consisted of two compartments. One compartment was a place of anguish and torment. The other place, compartment, was a place of comfort and bliss called paradise. We might call it Abraham's bosom. This is seen in the story that Jesus tells of the rich man and Lazarus. I believe it is an actual account. I don't believe it to be a parable. Even though Jesus did not give the name of the rich man, He gave a name to the the, the poor man, Lazarus. Parables don't contain proper names. I believe this to be a real account that Jesus in his omniscience knew about. Well, how did you remember how the account goes in Luke 16? The rich man died and was buried. Uh, the Lazarus died and was buried. What happened? Lazarus was carried up into, or carried, I don't know about up, but carried into what? Abraham's bosom. And the rich man died and in what? Hell lift up his eyes. The conversation said, I'm being in torment by this flame. They're in the same location, a realm of death, one on a place of comfort, one in a place of ease, and the other in a place of fire and thirst. We have every reason to believe that Jesus entered into what I like to call the happy side of Hades. So upon Jesus' death on the cross, Jesus entered into Hades, that happy side, that place where Abraham resided, and Isaac, and Jacob, and David, and Isaiah, and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and all the prophets, and all the patriarchs, they resided on that man, being that side, being men of faith. They resided in there. The hellish side of Hades, or the tormented side of Hades, the hot side of Hades, we could call it. Who would be there? Goliath, uh, Goliath of Gath. We could find uh, wicked kings of, uh, of pagan countries in there. Wicked kings that sat upon the throne in Israel. Jezebel herself would be in that hellish side, a hot side of Hades. And so we see the, 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 the picture there. What is going on in this place? Ephesians 4.9, speaking of Jesus, said, Now he that ascended, what is it, but he, that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth. Not only was the physical part, part of the body in the lower parts of the earth, in the grave, in the tomb, but also the spiritual body of the Lord Jesus it was in the heart of the earth, in Hades. Now don't get me wrong. Don't go out here and say that Brother Ronnie believes in a spiritual resurrection, in a spiritual resurrection of Jesus, not a bodily resurrection. That's not what I'm saying at all. But in this moment, in his death and burial in the grave, Jesus lies there on that cold stone, dead, wrapped, lifeless, but yet his spirit entered into the uttermost parts of the earth into that place of Hades. He descended into hell. Now, second of all, notice not only the arrival in hell, but the announcement in Hades. You see, in Luke 16, do you remember the account we're talking about here? Lazarus in Abraham's bosom, uh, uh, the rich man in the hot side of Hades. What happens in Jesus' account? 
They're talking to each other. The rich man can see over into, I don't know why I go to hell. Hell is on like on this side and heaven on this side. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what's going on here. But uh, uh, here, the rich man looks across this great gulf betwixt and he sees and recognizes Lazarus. He calls to Lazarus. Lazarus hears, Lazarus hears on the other side and answers. A conscious conversation is happening in this place called Hades. Would you agree with me with that? That's the words of the Lord Jesus. That's what's happening in this moment that he, in the story that he's telling. There is a message going back and forth. They're talking to each other. 1 Peter chapter number 3, verse 18 and 19. You may want to jot this down. You can turn to it if you will, but it won't be there long. 1 Peter 3, 18 and 19. There is an obscure passage in which Peter says something in passing that we don't find anywhere else in the Scripture. At least I've never found it in other places. Listen to what he says. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. He might bring us to God. I've said that time and time again. Being put to death in the flesh and quickened by the Spirit. By which, what, by what? Spirit. By which, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. Now what do you do with that? That's the part of the verses we like to just not quote because it gets confusing right there. He went by the Spirit, that's what he said, by the Spirit, went to preach uh, to the spirits in prison. You see, upon Jesus' death, His Spirit descended into Hades and announced to all those demonic spirits. If you'll read that passage in Peter, it goes on to talk about the days of Noah and, and the fallen angels that, uh, that withstood and all the things. And it goes, arcs back way back to the antediluvian before the flood era. Some of those spirits, some of those demons were bound and taken to this place of torment along with the rich man, along with the, the faithless in that day and time. Here it says that Jesus went to that place. He went to that happy side of Hades and shouted over the great gulf fixed, Hey, the Lamb has prevailed! <laughs> The Messiah has come and preached unto them that Christ has come and sealed their doom. He descended into Hades and announced to all those demonic spirits that they are held captive there and that all the wicked that are perished without faith in the Messiah, that the day of their doom had finally been sealed. In that moment, maybe they were down there crossing their fingers that the Messiah wouldn't come, that the torture wouldn't get any worse, that, that it wouldn't be more expensive than it was. Maybe they're just crossing their fingers that Satan's going to defeat uh, the Messiah. He's going to crush the Messiah. The Messiah's not going to uh, die on the cross. He's not going to do what God had prophesied to do. God will be then made a liar. And, and his, his plan would be trumped by, by sin and by men. Jesus comes into the grave and lets them know, Hey, I defeated the cross. I bore the sin. I am the Messiah, obedient to the Father, even unto the death of the cross. But also, Jesus would have preached the sweetest message that the patriarchs had ever heard. (laughs) The Lamb that you had looked for, The Lamb that you had believed on all those years. Abraham, 
that lamb that you saw and I told you the types of the gospel in your son Isaac who died who in effect was about to die on that uh, hillside under the knife that ram in the thicket that gospel that I taught you Abraham of a miraculous birth of a sacrificial death that gospel has been fulfilled Abraham I have come the lamb has triumphed over sin on the cross. Sin's debt had been paid in full. The promised lamb had come from Abraham to Abner, from Seth to Simeon, from Jacob to Jeremiah. There must have been a tear-filled room. They must have been climbing the walls at the preaching of Jesus. Triumph of the lamb. Boys, calm down. We've just got a few more days, just a few more nights, and then we're marching out of this tomb. Oh, there was the announcement that he made. But then also there's the advance that he made. The advance. Jesus' message to these departed souls of the faithful was not only a message of deliverance, it was a message of departure. Guys, get ready. Saddle up. Get your duds together. We're about to leave the happy side of Hades to the glory side of heaven. Ephesians chapter number 4 Verse 8 through 10, again, if you're taking notes. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, but what is a, what is it but that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up uh, far above the heavens, that he might feel all Things Paul tells of this Jesus who on that great resurrection morning not only went to hell in that death, in that burial, but led captivity captive. Led those souls from hell into the presence of God. From that happy side of Hades into the presence of God. Jesus would leave that place of Hades on that resurrection morning, taking him with, with him all those that had died in faith. Matthew's account tells us that upon the death of Jesus, listen to what it says. This is so amazing. Listen. Matthew 27, 52-53. And the graves were open, and, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after His resurrection, and went into the holy city, and appeared unto many. <laughs> after the resurrection, it says, there's a bunch of people that started to invade. I mean, he almost says it in passing. Oh, by the way, when Jesus rose from the grave, there was all sorts of people running around the graveyard shouting hallelujah and people uh, that could be identified as David and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and Joseph and all these people started to occupy that graveyard. Dr. John Phillips is one of my favorite, one of my favorite preachers and he, he paints the story of what this might have looked like. Here comes a man, a Jewish man that had been working out in the fields all day. He's hot with sweat. It's the end of the day and it just so happens to be the day of Jesus' resurrection. He's walking down the road. All of a sudden, there's a shadowy figure coming towards him. He doesn't recognize his face. As they get closer and closer, the man has a broad smile on his face and says, Shalom! And the guy says, and it acts like, you know, kind of acts like he knows him. And the guy says, Shalom? Do I know you? And the fellow says, I'm Abraham. Abraham who? <laughs> Abraham of the Ur of the Chaldees, father of Isaac of Ur of the Chaldees, of late 
from the happy side of Hades. He brought captivity captive. He took those that were reserved in that happy side of Hades and brought them from the grave. Here we find what was taking on in that moment, in that time. Jesus led these out of captivity of Hades into the presence of the Lord of heaven. That's what's happened spiritually. That's a spiritual reality. It's backed up here and there in the scriptures. It all falls together. We don't have the gospel biography telling us these things because they tell us what they see. They're bearing record and testimony of what has been witnessed, what has been seen. But what we see written by the Holy Ghost here and there is a picture, is a design of what was taking place as Jesus lie cold and lifeless within the garden tent. Last of all, a a physical record of separation. Jesus' burial. A spiritual reality of His separation. Jesus descended into the hell, into Hades, whereas He preached unto them the, the good news of the Messiah and where He turned around and came out on resurrection morning. Last of all, I want you to see the theological results of Jesus' burial. Another vantage point is theological. When Jesus was buried in the garden too, what is the, the theological significance, the theological result that impacts all of humanity and particularly those that have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ? What does it mean that Jesus was put away in the grave? We look at the cross and we see a man dying, the, the peasant carpenter from Nazareth, crucified, nailed to the cross, and we see him dying, and we say, that means he paid the price for my sin. He paid my debt on the cross. What do we see when we look at that grave? Not the empty grave, but the occupied grave. What do we see there? The burial of Jesus is an essential part of the gospel story. And I want to bring that to life. First of all, I want you to see my sin's price is the theological result of Jesus being buried. There is no more stark reminder of death than the grave. I mean, every time you walk past, I drive past a graveyard just about every day on McFarland. You know that old graveyard over on the left there with all them Civil War graves? Kind of give me a creep sometimes. All them old graves on there and old markers. One of these days, that's going to be me. One of these days they're going to find a little tombstone and try to say some pretty things uh, about me. They're going to put me in a grave, barring the return uh, of the Lord Jesus. But there's no greater stark reminder of death in the grave. No doubt as this was the garden tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. I mean, I've been I was talking to Carrie. I was like, you know, we really need to get some things squared away. You know, this little brush with Carrie's cancer and everything. We need to kind of get some things squared away. We need to make a will. We don't have a will. We've never done that before. You know, we, need to get, we need to be thinking about some burial plots. You know, some places where we say, that's my spot. That's where I'm going to be buried. I'm going to be put there. And whatever, wherever she wants to be buried. Or me, I'd like to be buried in Trenton. But we haven't discussed all that. I mean, we know we're going on rabbit trail. But, you know, but I would think, if I owned a place like that, I think every now and then I'd kind of go over there and just take a look at it. I mean, really, wouldn't you just kind of, there it is. We're going to meet someday. We're going to get uncomfortably close one of these days. 
I believe that maybe Joseph of Arimathea may have gone down to that grave and looked at it, thought about his own mortality, thought about how that because of Adam's sin, the plunging of all of the human race into sin, that one day death would grip his, of death would put its icy grip on his life. Romans 6.23 clearly tells us the wages of sin is death. The price tag, the, that price of, of sin hangs over the head of every son and daughter of Adam. Death, the grave. If indeed Jesus had bore our sins on the cross, then this tomb is the receipt that the debt has paid in, been paid in full. Joseph of Arimathea for a couple of days could have gone down to that grave and said, He filled my tomb. I was destined for that tomb. I was destined because of my guilt and shame. And He filled my grave. That in effect is what Jesus is doing. He is paying the price of sin. Not only in His anguish on the cross, but in that occupying of the tomb and death. He's paying the price of sin. In that death on the, on the cross. If indeed Jesus bear our sin on the cross, then the tomb is the receipt of the debt paid in full. It, this was your destiny and my destiny uh, that He took on Himself. 1 Corinthians 15, 57, uh, 55 and 57. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through Jesus, uh, through the, our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, the grave has no more victory. Why? Because Jesus occupied it. That grave, that cold sepulcher that should have been mined permanently, that old, that, that hot side of Hades that should have eaten me up for eternity, should have been mine, was occupied by my Lord Jesus, by my Savior. For those that have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, there is a victory over the grave. Death itself and that grave is merely a hope chest. It's merely passing from one door to the next. Absent from the body, Paul tells us, is present with the Lord. Because He has taken the sting out of death. My sin's price is the result, the theological result of this separation. My sin's placement is the theological result of this separation. The burial of Jesus reminds us of our banishment because of sin. Sin always separates. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, neither is His ear heavy, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid His face from you, that He will not hear. When Jesus lay in that tomb, our sins were being put away, taken away, taken with Him. Sin separates from God. Here Jesus is in that separation, in the grave. There was, you know, on that day when Jesus died, and they put Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they put Jesus in that tomb. Do you realize they left someone behind besides the body of Jesus? They left someone else in that tomb. Do you know who it was? It was me. 
It was me. I was there. Oh, Romans 6, 4. Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism unto death. When we are placed in Jesus Christ, that baptism is not necessarily water baptism. It is the being placed in Jesus upon belief and faith. When we believe on Jesus, we are placed in Him. And we all of a sudden occupy that garden tomb. Our sins being put away. You see, in Jesus' death on the cross, my sins are paid for. And in His burial, my sins are put away. The Bible teaches that. Old Testament particularly, Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, 34. I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sins no more. Isaiah 44, 22. I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgression and as a cloud thy sins. Psalm 103, 12. As far as the east is from the west, I have removed, he has removed our transgression from us. The tomb of Jesus reminds us that our sins have been paid for and put away. Put away. Left and gone forever. They're gone. Not only do we see sin's placement or the putting away of sin, not only sin's price and Jesus occupying my grave, my tomb, but also we see my sin's pardon. Paul mentions the importance of Jesus' burial in the Gospel summary in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the Gospel. Here's the Gospel. That I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preach unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first that which I also received, how that Christ was died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and was buried, and that He rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. What three parts make up the Gospel? Christ died, Christ was buried, and Christ rose uh, again. It's part and parcel with the gospel. In the very definition of the gospel, there is that uh, the gospel that saves, the gospel that forgives, the gospel that cleanses uh, uh, the, the darkest stain of sin. We are told that Christ was not only died and not only raised, He was buried. And with that burial, my sins are put away with Him. Colossians 2.12 says this, Buried with Him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with Him through faith in the operation of God who hath raised Him from the dead, and you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath He quickened together with Him, having forgiven you all trespasses. The burial of Jesus has something to do with the forgiveness of all trespasses of mine. Jesus occupied that tomb of separation so that I could have the joy of never, never being separated from God again. So that I could be forgiven of my sins. To have them put away finally and forever done away from. Like the Holocaust survivor Corey Tim Boone said, God buries our sins in the depths of the sea and then posts a no fishing sign. When he took took on that grave role, when he resided in that grave three days and three nights, he put away my sin. Put away your sin. You've believed on the Lord Jesus. In 1908, J. Wilbur Chapman wrote that familiar hymn. See if you can recall it. One day they 
left him alone in the garden. One day he rested from suffering free. Angels came down o'er his tomb to keep vigil. Hope of the hopeless, my Savior is he. Do you know how the course goes? Living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified, freed me forever. One day he's coming. Oh, glorious day. Oh, I know he didn't stay in the tomb. But that small span of time where he resided in that tomb speaks volumes to us about his physical life. About his spiritual reality. And about a theological truth that is vital for every one of us to remember. He put them away. Done! My sins are taken care of in that garden tomb. Hallelujah. What a saint. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we love you this evening. I pray you would convert the lost, that you bring them to the Lord Jesus, that they would see this garden tomb and realize that their sins have not been paid for. They've not come to the Lord Jesus and saved them. They've not availed themselves to the life-giving blood of Jesus, the, the, sin, the sin-cleansing blood of Jesus. May they come tonight and lay hold of you who cleanses us from all sin. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen and amen. I'm trusting to the unseen hand. We hope and pray that today's episode of the Unseen Hand podcast has been a help and blessing to you. For more information such as other podcasts, ministry helps, blog posts, previous sermons, or how to contact Brother Brown directly, just go to RonnieBrown.net. Join us next time for another message from Brother Ronnie on the Unseen Hand podcast. Until then, may God's unseen hand gently guide you on your journey home. The Unseen Hand.